History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 50 of the History of of Persia. As promised, I am going to answer all of your questions. I have lots to talk about, and I'm looking forward to this, but first, I want to say thank you. I know I just did this recently with the announcement episodes where I introduced one-time support payments and talked about Daric coins, but genuinely, thank you all. Without the support of dedicated listeners like yourselves, I don't know if I would have been able to keep this going. It's been incredibly gratifying to discover that there are people as interested in the kings, conquests, and cultures of ancient Persia as I am, and that they think that I am a worthwhile person to get this information from. More than two years into this project, I am honestly still blown away. In that time, I have graduated, moved twice, gone to school, left school, been in lockdown, and prepared to go back to school. Through it all, your support has been incredible and consistent, whether it is financial, on social media, in person, public, or private. It has been wonderful to watch this community grow around something I started for my own personal interest. From the first release, when maybe 20 people I knew personally listened to the show, and only 8 of them made it to episode 2, 
to more than 3,000 people listening to the announcements that aren't even real episodes in the first week of release. I remain consistently honored by your attention. For some scale, I released the first financial support announcement just after I had been featured on Podcast Addict and hit 10,000 downloads in a week for the first time. I was shocked, absolutely floored, and the world made a lot more sense when the numbers dropped back to less than half a week later. Now, thanks to your support and efforts made by all of you to spread the word, that mind-blowing five-figure number shows up almost every week, even when I'm slacking off. There's a reason I always ask you to share the show. It really does work, and I really appreciate each and every new listener. That said, Podcast Addict, if you're listening, you've fallen from the most popular platform in my stats to third place, so maybe it's time to put me on the front page again. Just a suggestion. But you're not here for me to praise you. You wanted to see how your fellow listeners grilled me for the past few weeks. Everything stayed more or less focused on the podcast and podcast-adjacent topics. Nobody asked what kind of toothpaste I use or anything. But I did still group questions together roughly in terms of things about me, things about podcasting, things about the Achaemenids, and things about the rest of history. Unsurprisingly, the Achaemenids remained the most popular topic, I assume because that's all I ever really talk about. Overall, this was a very successful plan. Almost too successful if you look down at the timestamp. I don't want to short anyone on their answer, and I'm a long-winded person, so buckle in. Normally, I'd split something this long into two parts, but this is a special event, so grab a drink, and I'll try to insert some natural-ish breaking points. I'll start with questions that I defined as about myself, and then work through podcasting and historical ones. That means these are not in the order they were received, but the order that was best for presentation. So without further ado, Let's start with a question from Matt. If you listen to Doug Metzger's podcast, Literature and History, have you heard the most recent episode, which is on Zoroastrianism? If so, what did you think? You know, it's funny you ask. I was originally planning on recommending that very episode of that very podcast before launching into questions. I do listen to literature and history, though I only discovered it last year, so I've been jumping around to the episodes that catch my eye. Doug actually told me that he was going to cover Zoroastrianism last year, so I've been eagerly waiting for him to wrap up his series on the Bible for a while. My only real complaint about the episode is that there's only one. I'd love for Doug to give the Gothas, the Yashs, the Vendidad, or the Bundahitian the same details as some of the more famous works he's already covered. One thing to note, and a reason that I recommend everyone go listen to this episode, is that Doug discussed Zoroastrianism as a whole and in retrospect. It's a great condensed version of something that I'm splitting up over years of podcasting. This means that there are a couple of differences from what I've said in the past. Some of that is difference in scholarly opinions, 
And other parts are Doug referring to developments that I won't cover for a few centuries of the narrative. He explains Zoroastrianism mostly as it is in the world today, and I'm gradually developing it from just a collection of hymns put down by Zarathustra 3,000-ish years ago. It's definitely worth checking out, and I'll put a link in the episode description. Speaking of, I suspect that the description will be pretty long with links to different things that come up today, because I'll talk about a lot of outside media that I want to support or reference. I'll try and keep that in the order that it comes up, with literature and history right at the top. On a related note, Carl asks, Did you ever listen to Kodad Rezakani's History of Iran podcast? Yes, I did. I'll be honest, it took me a few times to get more than one episode in. Narrating a compelling story to a microphone by yourself and lecturing a class are very different, and while Dr. Rezakani is good at the latter, it seems like he struggled a bit with the former. I still recommend his podcast if you are interested in the early history of Iran as a geographic location. While I spent three episodes focused mostly on Mesopotamia and the proto-Iranian nomads before reaching Cyrus, Dr. Rezakani spent ten episodes covering from the Neolithic period up to the rise of Cyrus in Iran, as in the geographic borders. Sadly, he petered out after Cyrus's conquests, which is ultimately part of what motivated me to start this show. Regardless of whether or not you choose to listen to the history of Iran, I highly recommend that you follow Dr. Rezakhani on Twitter if you have an account. He's at Sasanian Shah and has great content about ancient Iran. Matt, once again, asks, what are your favorite podcasts to listen to? God, I listen to so many. Too many, if I'm being honest with myself. Some are made by friends who I've met through podcasting. Some are the shows I listened to before I started. Some are just really good things I've discovered in the last couple of years. I'm subscribed to like 70 and actively listen to 40 or so on and off. Mostly history, but also some news and politics, pop culture, and a couple of audio dramas. They tend to be solo narrated stories, but that's not exclusive. Ah, this is actually really hard. I'm actively staring at Player FM on my phone, trying to decide what to plug here without doing anyone a disservice, because there are just so many great podcasts out there. Alright, I'll do a top 10 in no particular order, excluding shows that I bring up all the time, like Mike Duncan's stuff or Casting Through Grease. I'll put some brief descriptions in the show notes with links. 1. The History of Byzantium. 2. The Oldest Stories Podcast. 3. The Hellenistic Age. 4. The History of English. 5. The Timur Podcast. 6. History in the Bible. 7. The Vacation Bible School Podcast. 8. Behind the Bastards. And kind of tied to that, all of Robert Evans' other stuff. 9. The Pirate History Podcast. 10. The History of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And 11. Alright, fine. 
because I feel compelled to include words for granted, too. If I went into a detailed description of all of those, we'd be here all day, so for short descriptions and links to their websites, you can look down in the episode description. A whole bunch of people, more than I care to list, asked something along the lines of, I am wondering why you go back and forth in your pronunciation of Iranian. Okay, okay, geez, I get it. I don't know what people seem to hate more, me saying Iranian, or me going back and forth on my pronunciation with Iranian. First of all, I am strongly opposed to prescriptive linguistics. I think words take on a life of their own when they encounter new people, and the idea of a correct pronunciation is reductive. That said, I mostly say Iranian because that's how everyone around me, including American news media, pronounced it for most of my life. I also grew up hearing things like Iran and Iraq, and have to think about those pronunciations sometimes too, but not as much. Americans are also not the only ones guilty of this. Basically, every English-speaking accent except actual British-received pronunciation pulls this one from time to time. I know actual Iranians say Iran and Iranian. I try to stay true to that pronunciation when I think about it, but sometimes linguistic habits are hard to break. Luke asks, Have you been to Iran, and what are the best archaeological sites to visit as a tourist? On a related note, Matt came back with, If you could visit five sites from the former Persian Empire, where would you want to go? I have not, and I fear I probably won't be able to travel to Iran anytime soon. American travelers in Iran have to be accompanied by a guide and go through extended visa approval processes. I'm also pretty young and mostly broke, which makes flying halfway around the world, booking a guide, and traveling all over a country kind of cost prohibitive especially when I can't just do it by myself in crappy hostels. When I travel, I want to do it right, especially if I might not get a second chance, and Iran just isn't realistic in my cards yet. That said, the top five individual sites for me are Pasargadai, Persepolis, Nakshe Rostam, Bisatun, and Susa. But I think it's more fun to give five cities I'd want to visit because almost all of those would be accessible from one trip to Shiraz. First, Shush, where you can see the remains of Darius's palace and the Susa Archaeological Museum. Then, Persepolis, Pasargadai, and Nakshe Rostam, all of which can be visited while staying in Shiraz. While you're in Shiraz, you can probably also add Firuzabad or Bishapur, the ancient Sasanid capitals. After that, I have to say head north to Hamadan, the modern name for Ekbadana, which has another archaeological museum. Along the way, you basically have to pass Bisatun. From there, east to the capital in Tehran, with more museums and modern history. And finally, I'd want to swing south to Yazd to visit both a beautiful city and one of the most thriving and well-known Zoroastrian communities. 
opening up the floor to the whole territory of the Achaemenid Empire is a bit overwhelming. Spanning from Samarkand in modern Uzbekistan all the way to Cyrene in Libya and Meroe in Sudan, just sites from Persian history could take up a lifetime. Memphis, Sardis, Babylon, Jerusalem, Parthia and Nisa in Turkmenistan, and there are just many, many more all over former Persian territory. If you couldn't tell, I really would just want to travel everywhere. John asks, what is your interaction with modern Iranian culture like? It's a great, super valid question, to which the answer is very little, honestly. My interest in Iranian history was mostly born out of a philosophical interest in Zoroastrianism rather than personal experience with the modern nation and culture. I've never lived in a place with a significant Persian diaspora, so there was never really an opportunity for me to meet and interact with Iranian people by happenstance. My interaction with history after about 700 CE is also distinctly Western-centric, some by choice, some just by the cultural milieu I happen to live in. That said, I am trying to broaden that horizon. I've started learning a bit of Farsi and learning more and more about recent history. Doing the podcast has also put me in touch with some wonderful Iranian people from all over the world, including Iran itself, and I love learning from them. People keep buying me books about Iran without realizing that they're way outside the scope of my usual interest, and I'm reading those too. Recently, I was actually given a couple of Iranian cookbooks, so I've been able to regularly enjoy Persian food for the first time. For anyone wondering, you're missing out. A single bowl of Koresh has more complex and intertwined flavors than most multi-course meals in Western cuisine. Shifting gears a bit, a podcast about sports, but also pop culture, asks, Have you played the Total War series? And how accurate would you say the combat in those games are, if you have? What about Civilization or Age of Empires? I've gotta be honest, I haven't played Total War, and it's been a really long time since I've messed with Age of Empires. I love Civ, though. In all cases, I've watched gameplay, and from what I can tell, Total War is actually the one that tries the hardest to recreate combat effectiveness for the Persians and their neighbors. Age of Empires, Persians are nonsense with elephants and, and no chariots, which is almost completely ahistorical. Chariots were a huge part of Persian warfare, and elephants don't make an appearance until the very end of the empire. I know it was an attempt to add more elephant civilizations to the game, but they should have just done India or something more straightforward. Sid Meier's Civilizations, of course, doesn't really have combat mechanics in the same way as those other games, and doesn't really try for accuracy on that front. The Achaemenids didn't have giant death robots. Sorry to burst anyone's bubble on that. At the end of the day, though, that's kind of the problem with any game like this. They can't replicate the diversity of units described by Herodotus, and are largely bound up in trying to balance the game mechanics without super-advanced AI. 
come back in 30 years or so, and maybe they'll be able to do more to replicate an army of individuals instead of individual game pieces with different stats. As I said, I love Civ. It's one of my favorite ways to procrastinate when I have a really big deadline coming up. I just wish they had a better way of making the AI viable than giving them ridiculous numbers or huge tech advantages. I do feel like more modern AI can probably already pull that off. On that note, Civ 5 Darius is way cooler than Civ 6 Cyrus, but basically cheating if you go for a science victory. I'd also love to see future games with the Parthians or Sassanids in a slot that leans more into heavy cavalry or religious benefits. I'm just saying, Shapur II would be a great Civ character. Sticking with entertainment, Tenno Timor asks, Do you watch anime? In particular, I'm wondering if you've heard of a certain anime called Arslan Senki, or the heroic legend of Arslan. I have not. I'm not really an anime person. I ended up on the outside of that particular mid-2000s cultural bubble, and focus way too much on anime tropes and animation style than anything about the actual writing when I do try to watch it. For our benefit, Tenno Timur described it. If not, it's set in pre-Islamic Iran, the fake Byzantines seemingly winning the last war and occupying Iran. Arslan and his group are trying to liberate the country. It is heavily inspired by the Shahnameh, 1001 Nights, and a more modern epic called Amir Arslan. Even Cyrus or Kai Kusro makes an appearance as the founder of the royal house. My own personal take, after following up Tenno Timur's recommendation, is that it looks a bit like someone took all of Persian history and legend prior to Islam, tossed them in a blender, and it creates a cool fictional world which seems like a good show if anime's your thing. As for something I have seen, Matt pops in again to say, I read Gore Vidal's creation on your recommendation and was really impressed with his broad knowledge of cultures and philosophies in Eurasia during the Axial Age. What are your thoughts on the book? My thoughts are way too extensive to do full justice here. Creation is an excellent book that I want to do a full review for as a Patreon bonus episode at some point. The only problem is that it just takes a long time to sit down and take notes on a whole novel for just one episode. It's also one of the only historical fiction novels I've ever seen receive consistent, lavish praise from historians of its topic. I think it's even too much of an influence on Richard Stoneman's biography of Xerxes. It does an excellent job of bringing the Persian Empire and its neighbors to life and exploring meaningful philosophical questions. For the uninitiated, the book follows Cyrus Spitama, the fictional grandson of Zoroaster as he recounts his life and times while serving as the elderly ambassador to Athens. As a child, he was best friends with Xerxes and a pupil of Atossa. As an old man, he thinks Herodotus is full of it, and Socrates is painting his house. Through his life, he served as Darius's emissary to places as far-flung as Sardis, India, and even China. And everywhere he went, he met the greatest sages and philosophers to have debates in the meaning of creation. 
One of the book's biggest errors is also a key part of its charm. It relies heavily on the outdated idea of an axial age, in which many of history's greatest minds lived simultaneously from Greek philosophers to Judean prophets, to Zoroaster to the Buddha and Mahavira, all the way to Confucius and Lao Tse. For the purposes of storytelling, Gore Vidal makes many of these men contemporaries when they were actually spread out over three to four hundred years. And of course, nobody is more out of place than Zoroaster and his grandson Cyrus. The crux of the book assumes that the father of Darius is the same Vishtaspa who sheltered Zoroaster, which is a later tradition that doesn't hold up to modern scholars. The only other huge air of note, besides the sometimes caricature descriptions of Asian characters, which I wasn't a fan of, is the treatment of women. Vidal wholesale adopted the archaic and outdated view of the harem as a place where women were locked away and isolated, which we know from modern research is almost exactly the opposite of reality. Still, the book is thoroughly researched and a compelling story all on its own. Go read Creation, because writing this has certainly made me want to pick it up again. Tom C. asks, If you had a time machine, where are you going? And Matt asks, There are lots of unknowns in Achaemenid history, but if you had a time machine and could go back and find the answer to one, what would it be? So these are two similar, but actually very different questions. Possibly more than anything else, I'd want to bump around the first century AD and see the origins of Christianity. For all of the institutional power it now wields and the relatively successful preservation of literature in the New Testament, Christianity is a historical anomaly. But because of those lowly origins, the first hundred years or so after the crucifixion of Jesus is basically unknown outside the teachings of Paul, who wasn't even part of that first generation of followers that actually knew Jesus. Some of the most consequential religious decisions and events in human history happened between 30 and 100 AD, but went entirely undocumented so far as we know. That would be something truly unique to witness. That said, if I limit myself to Achaemenid history, I'd want to witness the events surrounding Bardia's death and Darius's rise. To me, it is the obvious thing. There are more questions surrounding a few months of 522 BC than almost any other single event in Persian history. Lucky Luigi asks, You've learned a lot about podcasting as you went along. How did your recording change over time? What kind of technology do you need to do it right? You're damn right I have. And you know what? The actual mechanics of getting the podcast from me to the hosting platform to all of the apps that you use, it still seems like magic. RSS feeds, the code that tells your app what I post, are witchcraft, so far as I understand it. As for recording, I've done all sorts of things. The first time I tried to record was with a gaming mic that just used the 3.5mm aux plug on my laptop, and it was a disaster. Basically unintelligible. Before actually releasing, I bit the bullet and learned about microphones, 
and which ones were recommended, I bought the most popular type that plugged in with a USB, and I recorded on a desk in the corner of my living room between a window and an exterior wall. Over the next year or so, I tried all sorts of different things. A stand that was on the desk, an arm mounted to the side of the desk, a pop filter to tone down my P's and T's and B's. Then I learned more about how microphones worked and discovered that the Blue Yeti I was using and most other common USB microphones are what are called condenser microphones and actually rely on an internal piston to record sound. But that piston is constantly moving, which actually creates background noise. So I switched to what's called a condenser microphone, which doesn't use that. It can either be more expensive if you get something marketed to podcasters, or very, very cheap if you just get a basic vocal mic, like you'd see on stage at a church or a community center. I went with the latter, which meant that it uses an XLR cord, the three-pronged analog plug that's still the most common on musical equipment. And that's where they really get you, because you then need what's called an audio interface to go from analog to digital for a podcast. I got lucky and found one used for a while, but then it died and the emergency replacement didn't boost the signal to be loud enough, which is the point where some of you started noticing that my recordings were too quiet. I fixed that in December with an early Christmas present, and now I'm actually having a little bit of trouble regulating everything to be quiet enough. In that time, I also moved and now record facing two interior walls, which means fewer car horns and sirens in the background. This Christmas also brought the single most dramatic improvement to my recording environment. I built a new computer. I knew my old PC's fan was loud, but good god, I never realized how bad it was. I've been using a soundproofed box to record where I put the mic inside and speak into one open side and the rest is soundproofing. Then I got a new computer with a new coolant fan. Go figure, it's basically silent and removed all of my general background noise. In short, I recommend recording with the quietest equipment possible in the quietest space available. The best option would be a dynamic microphone with an XLR plug and a good quality audio interface with an interior space, and a computer that doesn't suck. Soundproofing foam also doesn't hurt. All of that said, I know people with really bare bones of setups that are hugely popular. Scott Chesworth's The Ancient World is a great example. He's been using that first microphone I didn't like for years, and gets away with it just fine. As for things like recording software, basically any option works. Some pricey paid options like Adobe have user interfaces that make fine-tuning your process a lot easier, but they all have the same basic toolkit. I personally use Audacity, an open-source audio editor, but anything similar like GarageBand is more than capable of editing a podcast. Next question, Nima asks, how far are you planning to go in Persian history? And I hope you are not going to stop before Islam. Well, I'm not planning to stop before Islam, but I'm not planning to go on for too long after it arrives either. 
I've been using the tagline, a podcast dedicated to the history of the ancient Iranian empires from 700 BC to 700 CE. And that basically sums it up. I plan on taking things up to the Islamic conquests, when the political borders, ruling class, and driving social forces all mostly leave Iran behind as just another subject for the first time. Obviously, there is a lot of continuity, but the coming of the Arabs and Islam provides a very obvious breaking point for most aspects of society. I'll at least follow the sons of Yazdegerd III into their Chinese exile, but I really don't know how I'll wrap things up after 710. There are Zoroastrian holdouts and rebellions that I might follow, or I might make those some kind of separate miniseries to fill in the time between projects. Honestly, I expect to be much closer to 2030 than 2020 by the time I have to answer that question in detail. Hopefully, between now and then, I'll have done a few more AMAs to work on my answer. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Once again, Matt asks, what future topic are you most excited to get to in the history of Persia? I'm excited for all sorts. There is a lot of history of Persia ahead of us, so I don't want to limit it to just one thing. Short term, I'm mostly excited about the weird ways that Darius II was just Darius I all over again. 
and making the fall of the Achaemenid Empire entirely Cyrus the Younger and Perisatis' fault. Long term, it will be a lot of fun when I can finally deal with literature like the Shahnameh and really get into Persian and Zoroastrian legends in a way that I just can't with the early parts of the Avesta. Next up, my dad asks, if you lived in Persia somewhere between 1500 and 500 BC, would you still be a historian by occupation? If not, what do you think you would be? What kind of house would you have grown up in? This is a really cool question, and I guess it makes sense that my own parents asked it. The answer is probably not, unless I happened to be a Greek physician or a Jewish priest living in Persia. Nobody else really seems to have been producing long, detailed narratives of historic events at that point. I could be some sort of scribe, but then it's just keeping any record from the actions of the kings to what rations Pharnaces was giving to Artistine that week. Odds are I'd be a farmer, or even more likely a shepherd of some sort in the early period, which you referenced. That's just what most people were in the early Iranian world. But if we want to keep me as close to a historian as possible, I guess I would probably be a magush, one of the magi. They are generally considered to be the keepers of the oral tradition, including things like the Avesta and the life of Zoroaster. In all likelihood, they were the ones who kept and memorized court histories as well. We know that they were advisors and attendants at the royal court, and that means that my theoretical 6th century counterpart would have been raised in a relatively high-status household. My family would have been connected to the royal family or a nobleman's house, and I would have been trained to memorize oral traditions by rote and come up with ways to memorize and pass on new events. So upper class with lots of emphasis on rote education and memorization. On a related note, Brenna asks, why did the Persians not have their own chroniclers and written histories, the way the Greeks had Herodotus, Xenophon, and the rest? Did the Persians have written historical narratives that were lost, or did they simply not have a concept of a written historical record aside from inscriptions like Behistun? So far as any surviving source indicates, the Achaemenids had no written histories aside from things like Babylonian court annals, which were really just a list of events in each year. Neither did the Parthians, for that matter, but our sources for them are so poorly preserved that it's almost impossible to say anything with certainty. There are some references in Sassanid literature that indicate that writing was initially seen as a product of Angramainu and the Druze, which may explain why Iranians in particular were such late adopters for literature. It was a necessary evil for record-keeping, but history, religion, and legend were passed on orally. And that's an important distinction. Just because they didn't write it down doesn't mean they didn't have their own history. The Greek and Roman sources clearly had access to Iranian historical traditions, but they were not written documents. Examples include Diodorus Siculus and Theseus, 
who both clearly had access to otherwise unknown versions of events and names for historical figures, but their sources are impossible to trace. Theseus, in particular, probably got some of his information from storytellers in the Achaemenid court, and subsequently blended the fictional stories with the factual ones. Oral traditions can be surprisingly consistent with proper training and dedication, but are also more malleable in the hands of bad or careless actors, which is a problem we will face increasingly later on in the narrative. The next question comes from Setia. What was the staple food of ancient Persia, and how was it introduced? Was it something they developed on their own, like rice in China or the potato in the Andes? Or was it something introduced by previous civilizations in the region? I actually talked about food in detail back in the first holiday special from December of 2019, so you may want to check that out. I'll put it down in the description with everything else. Before the Persians, and the Iranians in general, arrived in the region of Iran, they had been largely nomadic herdsmen, with no tradition of agriculture to speak of. But they arrived in southern Iran, in Elamite territory, where farming had been commonplace for over 7,000 years. So the Persians themselves didn't introduce any staple crops, but they readily adopted the ones that were already there. Primarily, that meant the same two grains that dominated fields all the way from India and Bactria to the Atlantic, barley and wheat. Wheat made better food, while barley was easier to grow, and both were widespread in Eurasia and North Africa by the time the Persians arrived. They probably accounted for most of the calories in most people's diets across that whole region at any time up until fairly recently. Today, rice is a staple in Persian cuisine, but wasn't commonplace until it was introduced by the Mongols in the 1300s. In the Achaemenid period, if rice was available, it probably would have been seen as a delicacy because it was being imported from places as far away as China. Next up, we have one of my favorite questions in here from Lucky Luigi. Beard fashion in ancient Persia. Was this a thing? or was beard fashion static? They seem generally similar on art. What if you could not grow a decent beard? I once read something about fake beards, like wigs. Was this a thing? Now this is a good question, and the answer is, it was not static. But there also has not been much research on this, partially because nobody wrote anything down, and it's not like we have mummies to reference. Interestingly, there are a lot of things referenced online that I can't find any reference to in scholarship. Things like weaving gold threads into beards before battle, dyeing beards red with henna or yellow with saffron, curling with hot irons, and all sorts of references to things like oils and perfumes. My best guess is that all of this was speculated on in older scholarship based on ancient artwork but never substantiated, the color, in particular, isn't substantiated by pigment studies at Persepolis. So if you come into those things online, some of them are possible, but nobody has ever proved anything like it. That said, we can tell a few things. In general, there seem to be three categories of beard in Achaemenid art. 
short cropped beards on soldiers, thick enough to provide full coverage, but not long enough for gravity to really pull it down. Medium-length beards on government officials that begin hanging down off their chins, and finally, the extremely long royal beards. The best place to get a sense for all three is the Apadana Treasury Relief, which depicts Darius as king, Xerxes as heir, an official bowing to them, and a collection of soldiers all in one place. And you can see how the amount of facial hair off their chin is different depending on their station, though they all have basically the same amount cropped up around their jawline. Interestingly, the one image associated with Cyrus, the winged guardian carved at Pasargadai, has him depicted with a short soldier's beard, not the long royal beard worn by everyone after Darius. This might be a sign that that winged guardian was not originally intended to depict Cyrus. Over time, Achaemenid beards seem to have gotten pointier. They were always closely cropped to the cheeks and jaw, but the amount of hair sprouting from the chin was styled more and more into a triangle as time went on. You can compare cylinder seals and coinage and artwork from the beginning of Darius the Great's reign with later kings like Artaxerxes III, and Darius's looks almost rectangular in the oldest examples, while Artaxerxes is a perfect equilateral triangle beneath his jaw. Looking just a little bit further back, three or four centuries before the Persians turn up, Elamite artwork tends to depict men with very rectangular beards coming beneath their chin, rather than the pointier ones that developed in the Persian period. Interestingly, priests always seem to have preferred a pointier style. The same pattern holds true for the Faravahar symbol, where the seated figure thought to represent Ahura Mazda has a very blocky beard at the Behistun inscription, but more triangular facial hair in later versions. And as always with this sort of thing, some Persian satraps are depicted mimicking local styles out in the provinces. The royal beard also seems like it may have gotten shorter, and mustaches like they may have gone out of favor briefly. Neither Artaxerxes I or Artaxerxes III are depicted with mustaches, and Artaxerxes III's is noticeably shorter than many of his predecessors. Greek and Roman depictions of Darius III also tend to portray him with a much shorter beard than the early Achaemenids. Artaxerxes IV was very young, and seems to be the only king ever depicted with no beard at all on some Anatolian coinage. We know false beards existed in Egypt, and it wouldn't have been impossible for the Achaemenids to copy. That could be one possible explanation for some of the kings who appear without mustaches while their satraps and officials continue to be depicted with the full face. The false beard concept that intrigues me the most is the idea of beard extensions braided into a shorter beard. That has been proposed as one explanation for the layered beards in Assyrian art, but might also appear at Behistun, where Darius is depicted with a similar beard to his soldiers and then a perfect rectangle of braids hanging below it, possibly because he had to let his beard grow out after becoming king, but it wasn't like that when he was actually doing his initial conquests. 
Beards were clearly meaningful, but I'm not sure there's enough hard evidence to go beyond these generalizations. Next, Rasmus asks, I've read about how statues and temples in Greece and Rome were brightly painted. Do we know anything about colors in Persia? Were any colors especially sought after? Would the rock reliefs have been painted? Were temples in other buildings colorful? As I referenced just a minute ago, yes, ancient Persian cities and palaces would have been very colorful places. New technology has been used at Persian sites the same way it has been in Greece, and it yields stunning results. So far, most of that work has been focused on Persepolis, and I'll link some pictures of the recreation in the episode description. Those pictures were posted by Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, a great scholar of Achaemenid Persia, and I highly recommend you follow him on Twitter as well. Columns were painted red, the robes, faces, and items depicted in the reliefs were all painted vibrant colors, and the hair, especially on Persians, really stands out. On the Apadana stairs, many people's hair is blue. Now, they didn't dye their hair turquoise, but there was a long-standing tradition of depicting gods and kings with hair colored with lapis lazuli, a semi-precious stone. The Achaemenids seem to have taken that a step beyond and used it for many people in an impressive display of wealth. And that's just the paint. In textiles, purple and yellow would have been prized colors. Purple was very hard to get because it had to come from a specific type of sea mollusk that could only be harvested off the coast of Phoenicia, and yellow was primarily made from saffron, which had to be collected in huge quantities and is still a fairly expensive plant today. And that's just the beginning. There were gold and silver inlays, different colors and texture of wood from around the empire, different color stones ranging from black marble to carnelian and lapis lazuli to glazed bricks. The glazed bricks from Susa can even be seen today with full stunning color unchanged in thousands of years. I'm actually using a picture of those bricks as the cover picture for this episode on the website. There also would have been fabric decorations. Ancient sources reference tapestries and carpets adorning everything from temples and palaces to tombs. If anything, a modern observer might find an ancient capital city to be kind of gaudy. In a world where vibrant color was hard to come by and difficult to create, powerful kings and lavish temples may have gone just a bit overboard in their attempts to decorate. Next up, we have another pair of related questions. Nicholas asks, Aside from a source that lays out a clear retelling of Darius's coup, what primary source would you like to see miraculously found, not necessarily limited to the Achaemenids? And Kyle asks, if you could have archaeologists find a single artifact or document that definitely existed at some point in time, which Persian artifact would you want to be discovered? Ah, my patrons know me too well. Fine. Aside from a contrarian's view of the Behistun inscription, the source from Persian history I'm most curious about would probably be the Lydiaca of Xanthos of Lydia. Xanthos was a Lydian historian in the 5th century BC. 
uh, contemporary with Herodotus. Like, Theseus wrote a Persica about Persia, and Xenophon wrote the Hellenica about Greece, Xanthos's Lydiaca was about Lydian history, but it is almost entirely lost to us. We can create a reasonable facsimile of Theseus from quotes and fragments in other works, but have no such luck with Xanthos. Despite this, the Roman historian Dionysius of Halicarnassus considered Xanthos to be one of the best Greek historians. He was also regarded as having some of the most reliable writing on Achaemenid Persia, from direct contact with the Persian occupation of his homeland. Xanthos is cited as a major source by Nicholas of Damascus, who tells several unique stories about early Persian history, but even Nicholas is only known through fragments. So I'd love for someone to turn up even a partial folio of the Lydiaca in some Egyptian garbage pile or something. Reaching beyond the Achaemenids, I've already made my interest in the early history of Christianity well known. A non-Persian source I'd love to see is the theoretical Q source shared by the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Both share a lot of direct quotes in different orders that don't have a precedent anywhere else in the canon, and scholars think there was a source for quotes attributed to Jesus, the so-called Q source. It may be that it was lost because it's all in Matthew and Luke as part of a better organized narrative, but it would be cool for a document like that to appear in the desert one day. Next up, we have Rich, asking, Looking at Google Maps, it's easy to see that much of modern Iran is arid and mountainous, especially in the south. Was the climate arid in the era that the podcast is currently covering? Did the mountainous geography present any challenges to controlling a far-flung empire? It was less arid, but maybe not as much as you think. For instance, southeastern Iran, modern Balochistan, has always been a desert, and when we get to Alexander, we'll see that he made the horrible mistake of trying to cross that desert. That said, General global warming has certainly played a role, and the last 200 years mark some all-time lows for precipitation in West Asia, more so for Iraq than Iran, but the whole region has been impacted by the same overall trend. Other things are at play, too. In some cases, ancient sites look barren because their ancient water resources have been diverted to modern cities and towns. In other places, centuries of over-irrigation and silt buildup eventually ruined what was prime farmland 3,000 years ago. That said, the major geographic features like deserts and highlands have not changed significantly, and southern Iran has always faced some brutal summers. One ancient writer, I forget exactly who, mentions that a lizard could die attempting to cross the road in Susa during the height of the summer. So aggressive was the lack of rain and the heat of the sun. There's a reason it was the king's winter palace. It's part of the reason that Iran was never the urban hub of its own empire. Cities developed as the population and wealth grew, but the population and agricultural center was always Mesopotamia. Iran's mountains didn't really seem to impact the empire once it existed. 
The Persians and Medes were familiar with that environment, as it was their homeland, and they had tight control over it. In the densest parts of the mountains, just north of Parsa, and where the Caucasus, Taurus, and Zagros all blend together, they never quite fully controlled the local tribes, but that wasn't a barrier to controlling the rest of the Lowland Empire. Kalila asks, I would love to hear your favorite little fact or story that doesn't fit into the narrative. That's a tough one. For most of the podcast, I do try to include the little stuff that I find fun in the regular episodes. Stuff like Skylax Akaria being Captain Puppy. One big thing is something I did discuss in a Patreon bonus episode. The Greek doctor Democades was the personal physician to Polycrates. Polycrates was that final tyrant of Samos I discussed way back in episode 18, who was lured to the mainland with his entourage and killed, bringing his island into the empire. Democades was part of that entourage and was briefly enslaved in Lydia until Darius the Great had a hunting accident. The king had apparently sprained or broken his ankle after failing to dismount his horse, and the usual Egyptian doctors were not helping. To hear Herodotus tell it, they were pulling and pressing on his ankle, only causing more damage. Democades came in and set it in a way that healed and was no longer painful, but Darius's ankle could no longer bear weight. The king lost use of one of his legs just before going on campaign against the European Scythians. That disability never seems to have impacted Darius as far as our sources tell us, but it might explain why he wasn't leading the war in Ionia from the field. It just never made it into the narrative because it is buried in the middle of the story of Democades, which is mostly irrelevant to the wider history. Next, I've got Gari, who says, Caucasian Albania. What do we know about it, and what relation did it have to the Persian Empire? And in this context, the place of current Azerbaijan in Persian history. So Albania was a later name that doesn't really appear until the Romans turned up. Quintus Curtius Rufius uses it in his History of Alexander, but if you couldn't tell, that guy was Roman too so it might just be an anachronistic name. In the Achaemenid period, the northeast corner of the Caucasus was the very fringe of Achaemenid control. There's a lot of debate about just how much power the Achaemenids ever had there. Some scholars have suggested that it was the launching point for a second arm of Darius's invasion of Scythia with a kind of pincer tactic, but this isn't really backed up by our sources. We don't even know exactly who lived there, really. Just south, in the rest of modern Azerbaijan and the Gilan province of modern Iran, there were the Caduceoi tribe. They regularly worked with the Persians and could be compelled to pay tribute, but were never on a consistent basis. That region was the northwestern corner of Media, but often had its own regional governor beneath the Median satrap. We get more detail on the region that is now Azerbaijan later at the end of the Achaemenid period, which is something I'll talk about a lot when we get to it. 
In short, the last satrap of the region was a Persian called Atropides, and he managed to carve out that upper western part of Media as an independent mountain kingdom away from the Hellenistic successors. His kingdom became known as Atropatine in his name, and was independent until it was taken over by the Parthians in the 2nd century BC. Albania eventually became one of the many little border kingdoms between Parthia Atropatine and the Roman Empire, which fluctuated back and forth between the two big hegemons, though it was eventually ruled by a cadet branch of the Arsacid dynasty from Parthia. That ended when the Sassanids incorporated the whole region as a real province in the 4th century. Despite being on the border with Roman hegemony, Armenia always featured more prominently in those conflicts, and very few sources mention Atropatine and Albania in great detail. Azerbaijan is the Arabic-influenced pronunciation of the Sassanid name for the region, which was Adarpatakan, which in turn is either the Persian form of Atropatine, or a new name meaning something like Land of Sacred Fires, referring to a high concentration of Zoroastrian fire temples before the arrival of Islam. As I said, this is a region that will feature very heavily into later eras of the podcast, but for now, it's mostly the fringe of Achaemenid power. We're back to Setia with this next question. Based on what I've read about Darius and Xerxes, it appears that ancient Persia was more preoccupied in its western region compared to its eastern region. Why is this? Is it simply more sources from the west, or is there an actual strategic reason for ancient Persia to focus on the western region? Were eastern regions just more loyal? So it's absolutely a bias in the sources, but also maybe a bias in the population numbers. The Greek sources could only write about what was going on in the Greek sphere. On top of that, the Egyptian climate and the Babylonian practice of writing on clay tablets were just better suited to records that survived for millennia, and the Jewish religion happened to be very literate, very resilient, and the origin point for two of the most popular religions in world history. We don't have any benefits east of the Zagros Mountains. The records were kept on leather, there wasn't a tradition of literature, or even really literacy before the Achaemenids arrived, and none of those other sources dealt with the eastern region all that often. Almost all of the population centers were on the western side, too. Mesopotamia, the Nile, and the Mediterranean generated three massive population centers that all interacted and built off one another, while Bactria and the Indus Valley were the only real equivalents in the east and just didn't have the history of infrastructure up to that point that we see in the west. All of that said, Cyrus died on the steppe. The most prestigious military rank in the empire was deployed in Bactria just before Alexander invaded. Darius conquered India. Xerxes put down a rebellion involving Iranian daiva worship, and Artaxerxes II was doing something in his 40 years on the throne. 
the eastern provinces absolutely had things going on politically and militarily, but it wasn't well documented by our sources. Speaking of which, Setia also asks, is there a source talking about ancient Persia from ancient India? And is there sources talking about ancient India in ancient Persia? In short, no. Neither really exist. Aside from some Persian inscriptions that mention tribute from India, Satagadia, and Gandhara, there's basically nothing about either side of the relationship. The Greek sources are horribly garbled, too. Herodotus was at the far end of the world playing telephone for information about India. Theseus is full of folklore, and by the time historians of Alexander get on the scene, it doesn't seem like the Achaemenids still held power over the Indus River. Indian history, at best, contains some references to what might be people from the Achaemenid Empire. The grammarian Penyini is tentatively dated to the 5th century BC, and mentions groups called Maga, Cambodia, Saka, and Yavana. Maga and Saka seem obvious as possible references to the Magi and obviously the Sakai tribes that occasionally raided south from the steppe. Cambodia is odd. It is generally assumed to be an Iranian word, but nobody really knows the context for their appearance in Gandhara. Maybe they were already there, or maybe it's related to Cambyses' Persian name, Cambogia. There's just no firm information. Yavana is the most tentative. At a glance, it looks like it might be a name for Greeks, who the Persians called Yona, after Ionia. However, later Indian documents called the Greeks Yana, and older Indian literature, like the Mahabharata, refers to the Yavana before Greeks arrived in the Far East. Indian history for the region is largely preserved in Jain and Cantonese Buddhist religious traditions, which are much later in terms of when they were written, and do allow for the classical timeline of Achaemenid rule without being mentioned, but that timeline just barely works out. At the end of the day, we don't even know what region was really meant by names like Hindush and Satagadia, just that they roughly correspond to what is now Western Pakistan. I'll also say that India is a massive blind spot in modern Achaemenid studies, between political tensions of modern Afghanistan and Pakistan, and the total absence of sources to work from, all that we can do for now is speculate. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Chris asks, I was wondering about possible interactions between the Persians and Carthaginians. I know they were on opposite sides of the pool, but with the Carthaginians being seafaring and all, and what with the connection to the Phoenicians, there should have been at least some interactions, trade, or skirmishes. How did the Carthaginians react to Persian attempts to attack Greece considering their competition? Funny you should mention this, since it was the runner-up for Kalila's question a minute ago, and directly relevant to the current point in the narrative. The first time Carthage enters Persian history is when Herodotus tells us that Cambyses wanted to invade, but his Phoenician sailors refused to fight against a Phoenician city. This probably didn't happen because Carthage was ridiculously far away, and there's no way to get a whole land army across North Africa. Not to mention, Egypt was barely conquered when he had to turn around and deal with Bardia. Then we have Democrates, who I mentioned earlier. He was probably one of Herodotus's sources, so the story of his life might be true. Democrates finally escaped the Persian Empire by volunteering to lead a Persian mission to map and scout the northwestern Mediterranean near his home city of Croton in southern Italy. Herodotus implies that the Persians did not know much about the western Mediterranean and hadn't sent dignitaries or travelers out there before about 500 BC. That trip was a disaster for the Persians, so it may be that they just let their Phoenician subjects trade with their cousins and never cultivated much of an official relationship. The Greeks were convinced that Carthage invaded Syracuse and the Greek cities of Sicily in 480 BCE, in a deliberate partnership with the Persians. But there's no evidence to support even significant trade between the two, let alone a military alliance. After that point, the Carthaginians never really come up again in sources relating to the Achaemenids. You have to remember that Carthage in 480 is not the same place that would go to war with Rome 200 years later. Carthage was a flourishing trade colony that acted as the center of Punic culture in the West, a lot like Syracuse did for the Greeks. But they weren't a powerful, hegemonic empire. Syracuse probably is the best comparison. The Persian Empire didn't deal with the tyrants of Syracuse either, because they weren't big players and they were very far away. And Carthage didn't deal a lot with the mainland Greeks because their Greek rivals were mostly the ones in southern Italy actively interfering with their trade routes. Next, Wang Ji asks, How do you think an average citizen felt about their land or country being conquered? 
I mean, would an average citizen in, say, a remote area of Thrace, away from the battles, even know that Darius was their new king and government? How would that affect people other than soldiers? So it would probably take some time, a few weeks or even months in some of the larger provinces, but eventually you'd hear about it. If only when someone turned up to collect taxes. After Darius, the tax system was standardized and no self-respecting local governor was going to miss their opportunity to collect. Thrace specifically is an odd example because it was only briefly in the empire between Darius and Xerxes and saw a lot of armies in that time frame, so you'd definitely notice them. The most remote parts of the empire were mostly also the Iranian parts and some of the earliest conquests of Cyrus. They would have seen a lot of overland merchant activity, and they too would have received word not long after major political shifts. In terms of effects, potentially not much if your village never saw a battle or an army. Your taxes might go up, which could always be a problem, or they could go down depending on who you were and who the previous ruler was. Some Greek tyrants, for example, may have put a much higher tax burden on their people than the Persians would have needed to. This also assumes that nobody in your personal sphere was called on for military service since both the kings and the satraps could levy free landowners into military service as needed. That's where Xerxes got most of his 200,000 troops. However, you could also be called on directly and forced to travel far from home with little say in the matter. I'll discuss this more in a later episode, but the Achaemenids practiced a system of corvée labor, where subjects could be forced into service as part of their tax burden. These laborers were called kurtosh, and could be called on to do anything from hard labor on infrastructure and construction in cities, to working on the estates of royal family members as agricultural work. And don't think you get out of that just because you have a trade. If you were a medical physician, a craftsman, or an architect, you were also liable for kurtosh service, where your particular skills would be put to use in royal service, for a period of time. That said, you may have discovered that accommodations, regular healthy rations, and opportunities for your children were better on a royal estate than they might have been at home, depending on where you were coming from, since some of the provinces could prove unpredictable and inhospitable in times of poor harvest. Listener YF asks, in a recent episode, you mentioned art that involved Darius with what looked like a disc in the sky over his head. Could that have been to denote a solar eclipse during his reign? For anyone who doesn't remember what is being referred to here, I talked about this in episode 45 when I discussed Darius's tomb at Naqsh-e Rostam. In the upper right-hand corner of the relief carved on the outside of the tomb, there is a round disc with a crescent in the bottom third. This has been the subject of lots of speculation about what exactly it symbolizes. To answer the question directly, no, for the simple reason that modern astronomy can accurately predict when solar eclipses will occur and when they occurred in the past. 
can actually be a valuable tool for finding firm dates for events and using that as a benchmark for other things. For example, the so-called Battle of the Eclipse between the Medes and Lydians almost certainly occurred on May 28, 585 BC, because that is the date in the lifetime of the combatants when there was a full solar eclipse visible from Anatolia. No such eclipse was visible in the Persian Empire during Darius's reign. The disc itself is almost certainly a symbol associated with Mithra, the prominent Yazada in the Zoroastrian pantheon, who is also associated with the horse sacrifices performed at Cyrus the Great's tomb, and the sun as a material concept. The crescent imposed on a disc was associated with him in later artwork as well, and seems to have been borrowed from Mesopotamian temples to other gods, like Shamash, who may have been associated with Mithra. Next, Derek of the Hellenistic Age podcast asks, At the time of Alexander the Great's conquests, was the Achaemenid Persian Empire already on the verge of internal collapse, or did it take the force of an Alexander to knock it down? When Alexander came knocking in 334, the Achaemenids were at a low point, but I don't think you could say there was a risk of internal collapse. The only external threat of note besides Alexander is some apparent increase in tension with the nomads on the steppe frontier, but nothing ever came of it seeing as Alexander and his successors didn't deal with anything major out there for almost a hundred years. There weren't any separatist movements, and the royal family had mostly been reset when Darius III came to power, so there weren't even disputes about who should inherit the throne. Up to that point, Darius had done a good job of solidifying his power, and given more time, may have proved himself to be a legitimate king. In the 330s, Persia was kind of fresh out of internal battles, but it was fresh out. Darius III had the opportunity to create a unified front, but that unity was only two years old. Lucky Luigi asks, was the fall of ancient Persia to Greece inevitable? In short, no. Even up to 336, when Alexander ascended the Macedonian throne, I don't think it was ever destined to play out the way it did. If Philip II had lived longer, or if one of the Artaxerxes had lived longer, the political and personal dynamics of both monarchies and military command structures could have been very different. 336, a lot like 522, is one of the few years where I just stare at a page in my book and marvel at all of the individual pieces falling into place. I think war with a powerful Macedon did become inevitable due to some of the decisions made by Artaxerxes II and III, but the specific people, politics, and even the ages of important individuals in the early 330s play a big role in how things panned out. By the time Artaxerxes IV was killed, I think the Achaemenids were pretty much guaranteed to lose Western territory, at least in the short term. There's a lot of what-ifs in there, including if Philip had still been king, or even if Alexander had been 30 instead of 20. Would things have gone the same way? I don't necessarily think they would. 
an older commander may not have pressed his advantage so much at Gogamela. I don't want to go on for too long with this. There's a lot of half-formulated counterfactuals that I want to develop more as we progress through the narrative. And Derek, staying on brand, asks, Do you believe that Alexander the Great could rightly be seen as the last of the Achaemenids? In one sense, he definitely is. Alexander was the last king to truly rule the territory assembled by Cyrus the Great. After his death, Perdiccas may have been the nominal regent of the same territory, but everyone was functionally independent and certainly acted that way. Plus, historically important chunks of the Northwestern Empire broke off immediately after his death anyway. He also took steps to tie himself to the dynasty by marrying Persian royal women, even if they weren't his primary wives. Honestly, that makes him just about as legitimate as Darius the Great could be. To a degree, it just depends on how you define a dynasty. If we adopt the Taspid versus Achaemenid split between Cyrus's sons and Darius that's really popular now, or the methods used to distinguish the Egyptian dynasties, then you could argue that the Achaemenid dynasty ended with Artaxerxes IV, and the war between Alexander and Darius III was fought to establish what would replace the Achaemenids. On the other hand, Alexander is obviously different because he is an outside conqueror taking the throne from the Persian nobility for the first time. That's a clear break in continuity that you never would have gotten from Darius III. I think my assessment would have been very different if Alexander had lived longer and his own heirs had actually inherited the empire. But in the end, that's not what happened, and Alexander is otherwise just a dynasty of one. For my purposes, Alexander will be the last of the Achaemenids. After he dies, the places that I consider to be part of the History of Persia podcast will change for the first time, but only after he dies. Now, YF asks three questions with the stipulation that I give them as an elevator pitch. See, this is cheating. Haven't you noticed I give very long-winded answers? But let's give it a shot. Question one, what is the difference between Iran and Persia? Persia has always been the name for Southwest Iran. Today, it is said as Fars. That's where the ancient Persians came from. Iran has always been the internal name for the larger region and all of the related people not from Persia itself. Westerners mostly called it Persia because that's what the ancient Greeks called it until the 1930s when the Shah asked everyone to use the real name. As a quick aside, outside of the elevator pitch, I think this detail is important. Some people try to make this sound way more disrespectful than it really was. Almost every language does this for a few countries. Other examples include Germany, Greece, and China. None of those countries call themselves by those names. In most cases, when a country asks that they officially be called by their internal name, it's generally respected and adopted, at least in modern history. Second question. 
how has the meaning of Aryan changed over time? Okay, Aryan started as the shared name of both sides of the Indo-Iranian language group used to describe their own people. In India, it mostly died out, but a few ethnic groups use it sporadically in the north. In Iran, they continued using it to refer to all of the people with related culture in the region, eventually pronouncing Aryan as Iran, before using it to refer to the physical country itself and not just the people. Europeans in the 1700s discovered Vedic Indian literature and the word Aryan around the same time they started piecing together the idea of interrelated language families. Because Aryan was the name used by the first groups identified as part of this relationship, it was used to describe that larger proto-linguistic culture. Unfortunately, that linguistic idea, which is now what we call Indo-European, was eventually corrupted by various nationalists' movements in Europe, most notably German nationalism in the early 20th century, ultimately ending with the Nazi use of the word Aryan. And finally, the third question, what was the ultimate demise of the Persian Empire? This one's easy. Alexander the Great inherited his throne right at the same time that Darius III inherited his. Darius III beat the Macedonians in their first meeting and underestimated them later. He paid the price for that, because Persia was already dealing with an unstable transition. They were not prepared when the well-oiled and advanced Macedonian army appeared on their doorstep. Alexander was also just obscenely ambitious. Next up, Santiago asks, A few years ago, I read that the Iranian government was understandably upset with the portrayal of Persia in 300, and that they would make a movie from their perspective. Do you know if this ever got made? Well, I'm not having any more luck finding it than you are. So far as I can tell, this never materialized. It does fit with the general trend of condemnation of the movie, but I don't think the Iranian government ever had it made. Santiago also asks, Would you say that the recent deciphering of Elamite will let us learn anything of importance regarding Persian history? Okay, there are two ways to interpret this, and I'll do both. On one hand, a lot of books overemphasize how recently scholars translated Elamite. True, it took many decades after deciphering Old Persian and Akkadian, and it is still one of the most difficult languages to work with. However, we've been able to translate standard Elamite cuneiform for around a century now. The ability to refer to the Persepolis tablets as sources is proof of that, since most of them are in Elamite. Once upon a time, Elamite opened up the greatest trove of Achaemenid sources, but that was in the 1930s. More recently, as in over the last two years, a researcher named Francois Desset announced that they had deciphered Linear Elamite, a unique Bronze Age script used in southern Iran. This will not yield much in terms of Persian history, since Linear Elamite was only used from about 2300 to 1800 BC, 
well before the Persians. It probably won't even tell us that much about the Elamites, since it is only used on a few inscriptions in that relatively limited time frame. That said, it might help decipher Proto-Elamite, the very earliest semi-hieroglyphic form of Elamite that began around 3100 BCE. That remains largely undeciphered and could shed some detail on Elamite linguistics since it's a much, much earlier form of the language than the one we can translate now. If the Proto-Elamite documents we have are anything like any of the other documents we have from that earliest stage of writing, they're going to be really boring legal and financial documents. Next question comes from Sam, who says, I would love more or less accessible book recommendations on Parthia and Sasania, especially the Sasanian-Byzantine War of 602-628 and interaction with Central Asia and the Steppe. So this question might be more difficult than you expected. The Sasanids are having a bit of an academic renaissance these days, so there are finally some good resources from the last 10 years. But it's hard to pick out something that is both accessible and up-to-date. I've also decided to factor cost into part of my definition of accessible. Many of the best books are priced with the understanding that the primary customers are going to be university libraries. And I won't say more than that at risk of ranting about academic publishers for the next 10 minutes. So here are five books mostly focused on the Sasanids. I will put links in the episode description. First up, The War of the Three Gods, Romans, Persians, and the Rise of Islam by Peter Crawford. It is an excellent introduction to the end of late antiquity and the rise of Islam, at least in a military context. It's definitely the most pop culture of my recommendations, but that might be a good starting point, especially if you're interested in the last Roman-Persian war. Next, Sasanian Persia, The Rise and Fall of an Empire by Toraj Daryai. This is a modern staple of Sasanid studies and a great overview of Sasanid history as a whole. Third, Reign of Arrows, The Rise of the Parthian Empire in the Hellenistic Middle East by Nicholas Leo Overtum. This is the priciest book on my list, but that's partly because it's brand new. It just came out last year. While anything dealing with the Sasanids will inevitably cover the end of the Parthians, this book is great as something that covers their origins and the most up-to-date research. Now, these last two are going to be more academic, but both address two things that Sam specifically requested in their question. Reorienting the Sasanians, East Iran in Late Antiquity by Kodad Rezakani who I discussed at the beginning of this episode as the producer of the original History of Iran podcast. As the title suggests, the book shifts focus to what was going on in the Sasanid East with groups like the Kushans and the Huns. And finally, Decline and Fall of the Sasanian Empire, The Sasanian Parthian Confederacy and the Arab Conquest of Iran by Parvena Porshariati, 
In short, the premise of this one is a lot like an academic version of War of the Three Gods, but it cuts out those lame Romans and focuses on the Sassanids and their unique political structure in the twilight years of their empire. Obviously including that last war with Rome, but also the internal strife that ultimately doomed Iran Shar. Also, an honorable mention for The Last Empire of Iran by Michael Bonner, who I did an interview with last spring when his book was first released. It is more on the academic side, but does provide a detailed look at all of Sassanid history. The biggest downside is that it's a lot more expensive than the others on this list. Sam also asked, have you ever heard anyone make the argument that the Middle Ages started in Persia slash Sasania? So yes, but I've never been able to find someone arguing about it in an academic or even a really consistent way. I think there's a better argument that Sasanid Persia was the last foothold of the ancient world, but in reality, it's much more like both Rome and Persia laid a lot of the same groundwork simultaneously and borrowed off one another continuously for 400 years, paving the way for the Middle Ages. That said, a lot of the aesthetics we associate with medieval Europe have their roots in the East, most notably things like heavy-armored mounted warriors pulled from the lower nobility, the coronet-style crown with radiant points coming off of a metal band and a big fabric center, and the dresses and veils we usually picture on medieval noblewomen. All of that had roots in Persian fashion before it reached Europe, but all of it was also filtered through Byzantine Rome before reaching the West, so it's hard to trace. Next, Setya comes back with, aside from Zarathustra, are there Persian myths that we know come from or take place during the Achaemenid period? Kind of like Gilgamesh is from Sumer and the Trojan War is Mycenaean Greece. Well, sort of. We don't have a good record of Iranian mythology and folklore outside of the Avesta until we get to the latter half of the Sassanid Empire. So we don't really know what stories they were telling until about 500 CE. That said, a lot of the names from those later stories appear in much earlier parts of the Avesta, so some of those tales date back to the Achaemenid period and earlier. The most noteworthy collection of these stories is in the Shahnameh of Fedrosi, the 11th century Iranian national epic. The Shahnameh is kind of the medieval culmination of Iranian history as told by those stories that were first set down in ink by the Sasanids. Most importantly, this includes the stories of the Kayanian kings, who bridge the gap between mythical history with gods and monsters, and the historic period, which really seems to start with Alexander in the eyes of these later writers. Darius III is included in the form of Shah Dara, the last of the Kayanians, but the rest of the Achaemenids are absorbed into the mythical dynasty. Some of the kings, later identified as Kayanians, are actually referred to in the Avesta, meaning that their stories were already being told as history and legend during the Achaemenid period, 
but much of Achaemenid history itself was completely forgotten. People who seem like giants of recorded history to us, like Cyrus and Darius, were almost completely forgotten in Iran by the early Middle Ages. There are other works too, all of them feature different variations of the same Kayanid kings and their more mythical predecessors. These include the Sistan Cycle, and religious books like the Denkard and the End of the Bundahitian, both of which are medieval Zoroastrian products. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Next up, Sam comes back with why do you think Persian-slash-Iranian contributions are underemphasized in the modern understanding of global development compared to their Mediterranean and Chinese counterparts? And John asks, do you think the history of Persia will eventually be viewed differently in the West with less Greco-centric lens? Will the Persian contribution to world history and culture be more appreciated? I've lumped these together because I think the best way to answer them is by combining the two. This is such a big question that I actually did a whole Patreon bonus episode on it a few months ago. I'll stick that link down in the description too. I based it on an answer I wrote for Reddit's Ask Historians forum, which I will also link. For those that want their answer to this question to be both free and read out loud, I'll do a condensed version here. I think it has a lot to do with both ancient sources and modern politics. In terms of sources, it's just hard to sit down and read about the history of ancient Iran from the people who were there. The only surviving source that really puts Persian history at the forefront is Herodotus, and even then, it's mixed with his usual interjections and asides that can feel really distracting. After Xerxes leaves Greece, the narrative events of Iranian history have to be pieced together mostly from outside sources when their story happens to intersect with Iran. When you try to move beyond the biased outlook of the Greco-Roman sources, it's easy to get bogged down just by languages. 
For the Achaemenids, you need, at minimum, Akkadian, Elamite, Aramaic, and Demotic, and even then, most of the documents you have to work with are very dry records, even when they're translated. As you get further into Iranian history, you can add Parthian, Middle Persian, Middle Chinese, Armenian, Arabic, Syriac, Coptic, Ethiopian Geats, and so on. It makes compiling a history difficult and reading the compilation very tedious if the researcher isn't also a very talented writer. And frankly, many of them are not. It is also a consequence of politics. Eurocentrism and or white supremacy has spent a lot of the last couple centuries embedding Western curricula with Greco-Roman supremacy. Other ancient cultures like India and China have modern governments actively and aggressively promoting their ancient heritage and history. Even places that were heavily colonized get a leg up here, like Egypt, because colonial archaeology successfully promoted their history in the West. Iran doesn't really have any of those benefits, and one major obstacle. The current regime in the Islamic Republic, regardless of what you think about it, has a very strange relationship with ancient Iranian history. During the revolution of 1979, revolutionary clerics even tried to destroy ancient sites and were only halted by popular resistance. As an officially Islamic state, there's already a strained relationship with the Zoroastrian past and its artwork. As a republic that overthrew a shah who directly tied himself to Cyrus the Great of all people, they have a very strained relationship with a history of monarchy too. And at the same time, there is great pride in ancient imperialism and its achievements, which leaves Iran in a sort of limbo. On top of that, even though those are some of Iran's greatest cultural and tourism sites, their strained relationship with Western countries means that there is not a lot of Western travel to Iran. Many people tend to treat it like it's actually impossible or very dangerous, even though that's not really the case in Iran's borders. I think we're already starting to see some of that Greek worldview fall away in the popular understanding of the Persians. Even in books like Tom Holland's Persian Fire, there is an understanding of the less Greek-centric state of modern scholarship, even though I will still criticize it for holding way too closely to the Greek narrative. 300 certainly hasn't done any favors, but the other most popular piece of fiction about ancient Persia in the last 50 years is probably creation, which, as I said earlier, is great. The bigger issue is that most people will never engage with it beyond the first couple of things they hear. And that's true of a lot in history, and is more of an obstacle to historical accuracy in general than Iran in particular. And last but not least, a question I think is a great way to round out this episode. Setya asks, Will there be a ranking of the top 10 or 15 greatest Persian emperors, like people usually make with the Roman Empire? And who is your favorite Persian king? So my favorite, bar none, is totally Bardia. 
just because I think the story surrounding his life in particular is so interesting, which I bring up all the time. But he wouldn't make a top five based on who was actually the best or the greatest. Fifteen will probably have to wait until I have a couple of different dynasties under my belt. It would be all of the Achaemenids and then some. Like, I'd have to go back to Taspies or start including Alexander and Cyrus the Younger. Even ten is just kind of all of them in order once you eliminate the ones who only reigned for a few months. Maybe I will just rank all of them when I get to Alexander, but for now, I'll stick to a top five. Number one, Darius the Great. He's obviously going to work his way into the top two, but I think he beats Cyrus for the top spot on the merit of his organizational skills. He also reconquered and expanded the empire, so he's not losing points on military might either. The one thing that made me consider shifting him down to number two is that he did technically usurp the throne, but it was an evil magic priest, so we can ignore that, right? Two, Cyrus the Great. Duh. It takes genuine talent to lead the empire that conquers not one, not two, but three of the great empires of your day and all of their little neighbors. Even a figurehead would need some talent and charisma for that. And by all accounts, Cyrus was much more than a mere figurehead. Number three. This is where things get a little dicey. I just haven't done as much research on these later kings as I have on the earlier ones, and more of them start making major mistakes. It's one of the downsides of working in chronological order, but that said, three, Artaxerxes I. He was the last king to completely have a lid on Western foreign policy. He put down a revolt in Egypt and successfully managed to end hostilities with Athens and institute a new policy of controlling Greece through indirect means instead of conquest. These last two were harder to place, but ultimately, I feel I have got to give number four to Xerxes I. I almost want to give it to Xerxes II on the basis that he didn't have time to be good or bad, but at the end of the day, I think Xerxes gets an unfair treatment in history. He was the archenemy of Greece and didn't do enough with the Jews to get good biblical press. But Xerxes also continued most of his father's policies. He defeated revolts in territory he already had, encountered new peoples on the frontier, and built some of the empire's most iconic buildings— he reigned for years with success at home, despite one embarrassing defeat abroad. And that's more than you can say for the rest of the list. And number five, Artaxerxes III. This one may surprise people, as Artaxerxes III is often seen as the king who let it all fall apart. Kind of a James Buchanan figure to make a comparison to American history. I disagree. Artaxerxes III took steps to centralize royal authority and update the system implemented by Artaxerxes I after it had run amok long enough to spark multiple disastrous revolts. 
He also was the king who reconquered Egypt. Had he not been assassinated, Artaxerxes III had the ability to rearrange things in a way that could have prepared better for the coming fight with Macedon. And finally, after all of that, I think it's time to call it a day. If you couldn't tell, my voice is getting tired, and I just want to say one last time before I go into my usual end-of-the-episode spiel, thank you all so much. Really, truly, from the bottom of my heart, it has been a wonderful experience to make this podcast, and I look forward to the next 50 episodes even more than I did to the first. Next week, we will come back to the narrative with the Battle of Salome, and we'll see why Xerxes doesn't rate even higher on the list. Until then, if you want more information about the podcast, you can head to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you will find all sorts of relevant links, maps of the Persian Empire, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page with all of the different ways that you can financially support the show. The preferred way to do that is with a monthly subscription on Patreon, which gets you all sorts of bonus content, like ad-free listenings and additional episodes of the show. But if you don't want another monthly subscription, there's also one-time payment options and all sorts of links on the website. But as always, the best way to support the show is to get the word out. On Facebook and Instagram, I am at History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, it is at History of Persia. Go on social media, share episodes, and tell people how great you think the History of Persia is. If you've done that already, maybe consider leaving a review on iTunes, a Podcast Addict, or whatever platform you choose to listen through, because good reviews are a great way to grab people's attention. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.